Welcome to the Accor Report and Weekly Review. This is the podcast now on November 15, uh, 2021, uh, that gives us the opportunity to come before you as uh, listeners and readers of the Aquila Report to uh, for us to be able to say, these are the top 10. This is the top 10 are chosen by the readers. Uh, each day we put up at least eight articles and uh, then readers go on daily and read. And these are the 10 that uh, come up the highest and so each week we publish that in a newsletter that goes out on Tuesday so if you are on the email list you will get it tomorrow on the 16th of November but the podcast is an opportunity to just discuss what's going on and how the kinds of articles that the readers found interesting and just to give a little tease and encouragement to uh, come and read the articles themselves. And so this is Dominic Aquila joined by uh, Paul Harrell. And together we come and uh, share this podcast and some of our insight on the basis of the articles that are here. So Paul, we've got another interesting top 10 list here to go through. Yeah, we sure do. And I will note, uh, I counted six by my count that had to do, uh, you know, with, uh, I guess, either side B or homosexuality or sexual orientation uh six articles out of the 10 touch on that in some way shape or form now some of that's couched within the pca potential amendments to the bco but nonetheless uh it is a familiar theme this week yes and just so that you in light of that if you go and look over the all the articles total that the 56 articles or more that uh done you see there's a wide variety that touch on biblical issues, theological issues, persons, uh, opinion pieces, uh, dealing with a culture and so forth beyond these themes, but uh, it shows the interest that you as readers uh, have. So let's begin with the first one is called the NP, which is NP stands for National Partnership and the Ninth Commandment by Mike Littell, pastor of South Dayton uh, Presbyterian Church in America in uh, Dayton area of uh, Ohio and the uh, a couple of weeks ago someone uh, probably in the national partnership we don't know who it who it was uh, released uh, a treasure trove of emails going back to 2013 and to the present in which the national partnership had been sending out emails to their members they claimed they don't have membership but to those at least on a membership list or a list uh basically urging them to uh, vote for certain things uh, to take certain actions with reference to things that are before the Presbyterian church in america the pca so when they this was released it went to a number of folks they put on their website and uh, made it available and so people could click on and read and so it uh, just sort of went viral as they say in the uh in the industry and uh, the and national partnership uh, leadership uh, was um, trying to stall things and not let it go out. And so when they did write some emails to some um, folks who had put the uh, the link to where you could read all of the uh, emails, which ran to over 400 pages as you would go through them, uh, they were accusing anyone who did it that they these were stolen, they were confidential, uh, and so by uh, running them, uh, making them available, uh, you were that uh, individual, those people were being accused of uh, uh, 
you know, participating in in uh, theft and violating Ninth Commandment and so forth. So this Mike Littell then in this article basically does analysis of that opinion piece um, uh, with regard to the question, uh, was this matter uh, a violation of the Ninth Commandment, exactly where the ethical issue was? And he begins by saying, as I read the now public emails of a secret uh, society called the National Partnership, I was not at all uh, perturbed by the their occasional willingness to speak ill of their enemies, people like me, he puts in parenthesis. It was obvious that I stand in the way of what they view as a healthy Presbyterian church in America, uh, that they would call me, quote, unhealthy or, quote, dry bones makes perfect sense. In fact, I would be disappointed if they didn't say it because it's clear enough that we are on entirely different uh, teams, perhaps down to the very bottom of our souls. So that shows immediately in setting this thing up that there is a um, disputes and disagreements between different uh, segments within the uh, Presbyterian Church in America. So what he said was uh, concerned about the sheer number but he says, what really troubled me is that men listed as members of the MP are the same men who regularly invoke the Ninth Commandment against others. And now they're using it um, against others. And so he's saying, well, what does that really mean? And he explores that. And he quotes from the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism to give what the it's quite a lengthy um answer he doesn't quote the whole thing but as part of it's there as to what is required and what is forbidden in the ninth commandment which is do uh, you shall not bear false witness but he says he argues about basically this is a secret society this is how they presented themselves that uh and so the he just wants to say look there's some implications here that we need to be aware of so basically where uh, pastor latell comes down to he says if you say uh, say it within the confines of an exclusive group, those mem whose members are all known to one another, uh, who will imbibe uh, adult beverages liberally at General Assembly and laugh about the, quote, idiot the conservatives, then it's just words between friends, as Pastor Ken uh, Cassidy so kindly reminded us. And that was a we referred to that uh, blog piece last week from Pastor Cassidy and his uh, our, his blog piece is hyperlinked here. And on further reflection, um, I do uh, do recall being at one of the NP fellowship gatherings. I did not find it especially a beautiful orthodox, beautiful orthodox or sober. However, we are to remember what uh, we are not supposed to think critically of the several hundred PCA slash NP members who believe that the rest of us are merely dry bones. So uh, it basically is challenging the notion that having just posted these emails because someone else released them, most likely someone within the national partnership itself, uh, that others could not be held culpable and then some assessment. So that's uh, the one that number one on the list, Paul, and uh, uh, I don't know how much you became aware of it, uh, but uh, there's yeah, the. I've been following the story <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, his second paragraph, what bothered me about the emails was the sheer number of times that one of the national partnership leaders reminded his colleagues that what they are doing is not wrong. I thought about it like this. If I told my elders at every meeting 
that we were not doing anything wrong, could they be faulted if they concluded that I was giving them such assurances because things were really not as rosy as I was proclaiming? It may be that national partnership members are weighed down with guilty consciences if the leaders must assure the members frequently that their cause is noble, that that was good in the next paragraph about frequently accusing others uh, about the Ninth Commandment violations and things like that. But you mentioned this just a second ago in your analysis, Dominic, but I love the use of the phrase secret society um, because I really think I agree with that. That's the thing in this article, this number one article from last week uh, at the equilibreport.com. I agree with that phrase the most. I think that really sums up my feelings about this revelation, a secret society. Uh, you know, in, in, in either this article or, or the other article is going to re- reference the Gospel Reformation Network. But see, that that's the real politic article. That's number two. But see, that is about, uh, you know, doing things out in the open, having arguments out in the open, disagreeing, having great debates out in the open versus what this is. But it did cross my mind. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are very skeptical when you when you try to uh, advocate or you suggest that there might be secret societies, different ones, global societies that are trying to jockey to rule the world. And there's a lot of people uh, that reject that notion. <laughs> but if you've got one in your own denomination, what are the chances uh, that these conspiracy theorists are actually uh, right <laughs> when it yes. comes to secret societies? Uh, yes. Anyway, it is. Well, just going taking number two then deals with it now more from the, as you already quoted, the real politique. In fact, the title is the real politique of the PCA National Partnership. Uh, it says the national partnership, where, while established in confidence, is clearly organized a, a, a clearly organized political apparatus within the Presbyterian Church in America. This is written by I. C. Light, um, and it lives in the Dallas area. Um, and so basically, what he means by the categories here of uh, their organized uh, political group, he says another categorical distinction needs to be given. That given that the national partnership members have publicly espoused the belief of their ongoing, their organizing efforts amount to nothing more than garden variety denominational politics. But many of us disagree on that point. Uh, There are politics and then there is real politique. And that's sort of, I think, a word that comes out of uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, Politics writ large is found on principles which are essential essentially moral or ideological in nature. The ones who engages, the one who engages in real politique, on the other hand, usually claims to be motivated by certain tenets, but doesn't shrink back from questionable methodology so long as it achieves practical goals, even if long-held norms might, might may be violated in the process. The manifold principle which undergirds PCA politics is that we be faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. All well and good, but real politique is what uh, happens uh, is happening within the national partnership, despite its many disclaimers to the contrary. So just in that uh, paragraph, you can see that the definition is that this is a group that is organized and they are working for on a certain agenda and desire, which on its face would not be it's not necessarily order you can have uh, different uh, opinions and notions about 
uh, what you'd like to see the denomination to look like and how you would define it. The, but if you're making assertions that it's a secret society, uh, but you're still using these tactics known as real politique, maybe, uh, you know, you, you need to just sort of come clean and say, look, we're just we, we have these views and we're going to promote them and make a case for them. So uh, this particular article then more is a critique of all of those um, uh, notions that are, uh, you know, will be helpful. I think it's a very uh, helpful uh, piece. So far, many in the PCA who oppose the National Partnership's agenda, including ranking members of the Gospel Reformation Network, GRN, have expressed their distaste for these controversial and decidedly unprecedented methods and declined to adopt them in a tit-for-tat fashion. And goes on to mention now, let's if we're going to do it, let's have good, honest debate that Presbyterianism is grounded in good uh, gathering and assemblies and debating things uh, and to before we take uh, votes on them. So uh, I think a very helpful piece here, uh, Paul, that uh, we can, uh, you know, be that will really, I think, help spark or advance the cause because it's a, a good, rational, reasonable piece evaluating uh, what the national partnership has presented itself to be. Yeah. And, you know, the paragraph before that, you know, even proposes the idea you know, that they should just go ahead and declare themselves to be a political party in order to alleviate the concerns of impropriety shared by those who would otherwise organize to oppose them. In other words, if real politics is going to be the norm, then let's go ahead and formalize it. Uh, continued assertions that what the national partnership does are within the established norms of the PCA only turn only turn the temperature up. And matter of fact, I read this article last week, you know, when it was on the website and <clears throat> I, once I got to that part in the paragraph, the very next paragraph is is saying we don't need to do this tit for tat stuff. But by the time I was at the the, the second to last paragraph of the article, I would that was kind of uh, that's where I was kind of going. You know, my in my uh, my thought process was, you know, a tit for tat type situation. Uh, and so I'm glad he finished out and rebuked me there uh, in the in the last uh, part of the article. But mm -hmm. um, it's helpful. You know, I, I think the good news is about these uh, these emails that are now out there is these are discussions that I think we need to have. And in a lot of ways, it's a sigh of relief that um, we now have proof that that those of us who have been concerned, the elders in the PCA who have been concerned at the Gospel Reformation Network or otherwise, who have been told, no, there's nothing to see here. You know, you're you're crying wolf. Um, we, we now know that that's not the case, that there really is. There really are hidden agendas and there is organization being done behind the scenes to steer the PCA in a different direction than it than it was or, or is currently going. And that at least is refreshing to where now we can in an open and honest way. Let's decide if that's what we want to do. Do we want the national partnership folks and their goals or or do we not want that? And so the fact that we now can, can confirm that it exists and that there aren't people crying wolf, that there actually is and are disagreements, that's something to be celebrated. Yes, that's right. Being uh, open is important. And we'll come back to this because there are a couple of other articles in the top 10 that uh, deal with that. Number three 
uh, written by Larry Ball, which is a follow-up to what was on the top 10 list last week in which he had written uh, that and added a sort of a you know, different definition uh, to what we've been discussing with the homosexual issue in the PCA with regard to the uh, overtures that are before presbyteries right now. There are two sets of overtures. we calling them, summarize them with Overture 23, which is basically amending, uh, uh, if it passes, uh, uh, Book of Church Order, Chapter 16, and creates a new paragraph number four, so 16.4. And then Overture 37, which deals with um, amending the Book of Church Order at Chapter 21, and also 24. So there was a, together the same deal with officers uh, in the church. So who can be candidates for ordination officers in the church? So Larry Ball, um, retired uh, PCA minister and living up in the northeast uh, part of uh, Knoxville in um, uh, in uh, Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, <clears throat> he uh, just had received some questions about how he had written about side B and added the number two uh, to it. So side B2 in terms of saying this is what the PCA is. So he just had some questions. So he said, let me clarify it. So he said, let's take one more lap around the block. I can see. So he says, for, so he said, okay, first of all, there are three different positions as he sees it. The first one is when a man makes it public that he has homosexual desires to have sexual relations with other men, this automatically disqualifies him from holding office in the PCA. That's the first one. By the way, the, these uh, amendments deal with qualification for office, not necessarily for uh, membership in a local church. So that's the first one. The second one is a position when a man takes it, that makes it, uh, makes it public that he has homosexual desires to have sexual relations with other men, and yet he practices celibacy. This may disqualify him from holding office uh, in the PCA, and he explains that. So the first is you disclose it, but you're practicing it, so that's disqualifying. You're exposing it, you have these urges, but it may disqualify um, even with celibacy. And then thirdly, there is a position that when a uh, man makes it public that he has homosexual desires to have sexual relations with other men, uh, but he practices celibacy because he believes that change is possible, uh, parenthesis, although unlikely, and because he mortifies this sin every day and because he is, he is of good character in every other way he could be qualified to hold office. And so he's arguing that's the side B2. The second paragraph probably would be considered, well, traditionally side B, but he would say side B1. So what he says is the proposed changes the BCO would allow for the third man, that is the one who is working on it, mortifies the flesh, is really working and striving in sanctification to grow in grace on these um uh, uh, attractions that he has, it would allow the third man to hold office in the PCA after careful examination by his session or presbytery. So either an elder deacon in a local church or a minister um, in the presbytery. Uh, the uh, He says, there, are, there you have it. He says, pretty straight. He says, I would uh, add just one more thought that the PCA is something like the South during the Civil War, which believed in states' rights. All local presbyteries and sessions have the right to determine their own membership, uh, regardless of the results 
of the proposed changes in the BCO, the conclusion of the PCA study committee and a recent SJC, the Standing Judicial Commission decision, really continue to give more direction to whatever the church is going to practice. So I think that helps to clarify what's before the church with these three different stances as to who would be qualified as we interpret now the those um, doc, those uh, amendments that are before the presbyteries of the Presbyterian Church in America. So Larry helped us, you know, by bringing this a little, a little more clarity uh, yeah. into <clears throat> into this process. Yeah. Well, you know, feel free to, to to correct me or share your thoughts on this, Dominic. But I mean, at the end there, uh, that last paragraph, there yeah. you have it, pretty straight. I hope I would add one more thought. The PCA's a little like the South during the Civil War. All local presbyteries and sessions have the right to determine their own membership, regardless of the result of the proposed changes uh, and that sort of thing. And I'm just so I'm thinking, well, does that mean that more confessional churches are just going to stay more confessional while the more progressive churches are going to continue to get more progressive. And, and then what? I mean, at some point, if there's such differences, you know, it, is this kicking the can down the road to an eventual uh, an eventual, um, I don't know, reckoning of some kind? Well, that's an interesting uh, question, because that is possible. In fact, one of the arguments against uh, adopting any of these amendments is to say, well, our confession already speaks to it. And the retort to that is, then why are we having this discussion uh, about where the church is? So we have to have some way of saying that the church has considered it and sees application, implication, application of what our confessional standards in the that's in the uh, Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, uh, say with regard to the seventh commandment on uh, human sexuality and uh, the uh, in terms of morality, and then also what the scripture says about being above reproach. And uh, those kind of standards are also listed in our book of church order. So uh, putting uh, sort of meat on that skeleton is what's happening right now in light of the recent issues that have crept up in the culture that now are coming confronting the church and the church has to uh, see in what way is it going to respond to the realities that are changing on the ground all around us. And uh, so it's not uncommon if you look throughout church history that uh, when uh, issue arises, it, it comes up because someone in the church is sort of taking an idea that has been appeared settled and then adding to it or taking it in a direction that the church never envisioned or something that comes from the outside in to the church and the church uh, had a position, but now it's being challenged. And so it has to respond. And so while we have the, the framework of our theological system, uh, the application uh, comes uh, as the as those ethical challenges come. And I think that's the reason why these amendments to the Book of Church Order have uh, come up. And they and so it, the argument that um, you can that our confessions and so forth have already taken care of the matter uh, at, in terms of framework, in terms of ethical, biblical, ethical understandings, that's true in terms of application, uh, not necessarily. And that's why uh, this is really an important 
thing that's before the church. And you, like I said, throughout church history, you find the church having to uh, define, uh, study again, and then define uh, what these ethical frameworks that we have uh, are all, you know, all about. So, um, so you, you read it right. And so it can, if, if, if we don't have that agreed upon application part, uh, then that's where the tensions within the organization will come to the point where some it, it could create a rift. In fact, as we've already noted here, in fact, we're going to have uh, one of the uh, articles that we'll have on uh, the article number nine is going to actually bring this out in a very close thing. So we can I'll wait to make more comments. Yes, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting times, you know, with mm-hmm. what happened this summer with the proposed amendments. And the the fact of the national partnership emails, there there's certainly you know a lot of moving parts here, and it's all happening for a reason. Not clear mm-hmm. not clear exactly what that is yet, but right. Well, and number four maybe takes us into a, a different category, but now it's still touching on the ethical applications of scripture and the framework that we need to have uh, in in our culture. And the title is, Are We Bowing to America's Golden Image? Uh, nations have potentials to attempt their, uh, to unify their people under a new form of religious devotion, one that attempts to assert itself against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, this is written by Pastor Chris Gordon, who's a pastor in the United Reformed Church, that's the URC, out in Escondido. Uh, California. And uh, Chris has written a number of times and many of his articles wind up in the top 10 uh, as he challenges us with that. So what he was saying, he's referring to uh, a class, the, a Sunday school class that uh, Dr. Robert Godfrey, just retired president of Westminster Seminary in California, uh, teach, uh, teaches there at the Escondido United Reformed Church. And uh, that he started a new series called What's Going On? Uh, Sex, Race, Politics and Power. Uh, In the class, Godfrey made the assertion that Christendom has come to an end in America, which is quite a, you know, just taking it by itself as a startling statement. Well, what he goes on to explain from what Dr. Godfrey uh, talks about is that Christendom as uh, Christianity itself, um, as it uh, is expressed in the context of the world, had a, a, a major effect on the development of America. And whether we call America a Christian nation or at least deeply influenced by it, uh, the, his uh, uh, statement now is that that Christendom in America basically came to an end with the Supreme Court ruling in 2015 uh, with the on the homosexual um, uh, ruling that uh, the Supreme Court made. And and so basically he makes the case uh, 1700 years in the West. Christianity has been the favored religion protected under law and cultural dominance. But something specific says um, Godfrey has happened in America that brought Christendom to an end. And he says, I'll return to this point later on, uh, Gordon does, in his um, statement. So just one more thing that he does here is he goes back into Daniel and it says, okay, what what is it that we're worshiping? And there's the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, erected. 
and uh, how he was calling everyone to uh, to that. Now he this is in chapter two is uh, of uh, Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel interprets it of uh, this great um, statue, this image, uh, and which had, has basically four parts and how uh, it worked its way into uh, God's redemptive uh, you know history and the power of kingdoms. And he says basically there's your the kingdom of the world. Uh, to use Augustine's phrase, the the city of man or the city of the earth. And uh, over against that kingdom becomes the kingdom of God uh, and the city of God that Augustine spoke about. And so now there's a clash between these two kingdoms. So one is basically darkness overseen by Satan. The other is light, and which is, of course, uh, the kingly rule is that of Christ. And that's what's uh, happening in terms of what what impact do these things have in the culture and in the world in which we're living. And uh, I think it's in that sense that Christendom is being defined, uh, that the impact is no of Christendom is no longer like it was because it seems like the uh, the world is more and, and culture in general is worshiping the idol comparable to the one that uh, Nebuchadnezzar set up and how it's defined even by God about that he was going to allow these kingdoms to be set up, which are so contrary over against the eternal kingdom of Christ who rules and sits on the throne over everything. But in as it works out historically, it doesn't look, it doesn't appear that the kingdom of Christ is that uh, engaged in the world. And so he says, maybe it's because we're not watchful and we're we're not watching uh and we're not and we're worshiping the wrong image that is not worshiping the true god of the universe so paul it's a intriguing thing and by the way we get the article number seven is going to complement what we just said here so we'll come back to this Mm -hmm. thing again but well what's your one observation uh what and it just dawned on me this is the most man-centered thing ever. Nebuchadnezzar gets a dream from God. Daniel interprets it. Tell us about the statue. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to build one of those and command everyone to worship it. I mean, you know, the complete the complete opposite of what he should have done. You know, that's his instinct. I've got this dream from God. Well, I'm going to build the statue and we're going to worship it. He makes this point in the article is what I'm saying. The transition from Daniel 2 to Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, this is my favorite quote from this piece, quote, until we appreciate that a religious system is being imposed upon us. We will be like a soldier fighting over his mandated uniform rather than engaging the true battle that enables all of these other power grabs. How many Christians are fighting COVID-19 mandates and yet have done little to help their people engage with the newly religious sexual revolution? So he argues in this piece that the left and, you know, he ties it back to 2015, the Supreme Court, Oberfell, where, you know, Obama put a rainbow on the White House. Remember this? So he ties it back to that. But he's saying that this is this is a religious, you know, this this is now a new religion. And if you look at the LGBTQ plus crowd and by the way, they just keep adding more and more and more. There's more and more dogma. You've got Vody Bauckham, who 
says uh, has has this book fault lines that argues this as well this is a new religion this there is a dogma there is a doctrine there is some you know what's considered orthodox what's not and this is a great article and a compliment to that because it we really do need to have a daniel chapter 3 mindset you know not just with the covid you know i've made that uh i've made that uh uh, uh comparison here i referenced daniel 3 about the men that threw shadrach meshach and abednego into the fire, they themselves perished because the fire was so hot. And if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had simply decided to love their neighbor and worship the statue instead of doing what they felt convicted to, those men wouldn't have died when they threw them in the furnace and they would have lived long and happy lives. Um, but it's not just with the COVID. He's saying we we need to recognize the sexual revolution and the the I'll call them the left because I can't get out of my domestic politic mind that that the the left has a religious fervor and a devotion to these principles uh and 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 once we recognize that we're actually fighting a new religion which of course is paganism or or whatever whatever you want to call it it's not the worship of god so it's not good uh we're not going to be able to fight the battle the spiritual battle effectively or even the cultural battle if that's your thing effectively if we don't realize what we're up against and in fact, I would probably argue, uh, just in my getting into how I generally teach church history, that I put these two uh, kingdoms that they ultimately is there's always just the uh, kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ, and they're in opposition. And again, picking up from Augustine, he's influenced me a great deal on this uh, the city of God and the city of man. And when Rome was cr- uh, falling apart around 410, uh, and even Christians were saying, what are we going to do if Rome falls? What, wh- How are we going to define ourselves? Because it, it was such a dominant uh, cultural identity point for uh, people in the Roman Empire. Uh, so he had to help Christians understand, well, let, let's make sure we put this all together uh, in the right way to understand that um, that the, the as mighty and as beautiful and impressive as that image was that that Nebuchadnezzar saw and that God did reveal to him as you point out Paul that uh it started with gold and then it was the silver and then it was bronze and then iron mixed with clay that in each successive time there was the mixture of the and the quality of the material was lesser and lesser and then this rock comes out of the stone is carved out without hands from the mountain, and that becomes the rock that will be the foundation for the eternal kingdom of God. So it doesn't, it's not as impressive looking uh, as this great uh, statue, but it comes crashing down on the feet, which are made of the clay and the iron mixture. And and, and Daniel tells us that that is showing how God is uh, prevailing through his person. And that phrase about the carving of the rock is picked up by Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse 14, and also Isaiah uh, 20, 28, uh, 16 and following, that uh, there is a rock that is going to be uh, the foundation point for the, the whole church. And Peter picks it up also in 1 Peter chapter 2. So it's just a, a theme that flows through here that in the midst of all this, when Jesus rises from the dead, what is his declaration in Matthew 8, uh, 28, 18? All authority has been given to me. Uh, I'm not, there's no big image. It's not made of gold and silver and, and bronze and so forth. No, it's the eternal kingdom of God. In fact, um, Gord, uh, Chris Gordon ends here. The eternal kingdom of Christ is breaking in. 
and all other nations are crumbling before the feet of our king. Just that image of the rock hitting that. Uh, so the, the feet started to go and then everything started to crash down. We need boldness in our day more than ever to speak these truths that are part of the authority that Christ gives to his church that leads us to the unshakable kingdom, which is the kingdom of Christ. So the call here is that we don't attach ourselves, even as believers, to the city of God, to the the images that are the big image that is uh, posted, but recognize that we're part and parcel of the kingdom of Christ. We're in light, that image is in darkness, and um, that's where the battle lines are drawn, not so much politically, although it manifests itself politically in different ways, uh, but we need to be about the important business of either being in the city of man, which we don't want to be in because that's where we came out of, or a city of God, uh, which really has is the ultimate uh, perver- uh, you know, um, victor and the one that will be victorious in the end. So it's just a wonderful way to, I think, good article, a great, great discussion starter uh, for all of us. For sure. Okay, well, we go back now to BCO uh, the amendments of uh, uh, overtures 23 and 37. And this is entitled BCO amendments 23 and 37. Have you ever known a dry drunk? Uh, this is a third of uh, three. And uh, the other two articles are hyperlinked here in which uh, Knott's Better is giving um, an assessment of why and evidence of why he believes that the amendment should uh, should be approved. And basically, he's now dealing with it more from the issue of um, uh, in terms of sanctification. Uh, that is that we realize that some arguments made uh, about someone who's struggling with homosexuality that, well, that, you know, if you, you know, uh, the arguments made in uh, social structures coming out of AA mainly that if you are uh, had been had difficulty with alcohol in the past. And now you're sober and you haven't taken any alcohol for a period of time. They, they, at least in the lingo of AA, you're still an alcoholic, even though you haven't done anything. Why? Because you've grown out of it. And, but you know, you're just one way, one day away from probably succumbing again, if you're not careful. And uh, so the, the way the scripture presents it though, is that there's progressive progressive growth and that we see moral improvement in the believer's life because we are focused on becoming more and more like Christ. Uh, We're conforming to him. And so uh, as we're growing up into Christ by his grace and the knowledge of Christ and his word, uh, the spirit leads us uh, further and down the road of growth to further away from the former affections, uh, former life that we had. And even though we may still wrestle with sin, which we will do for uh, all of our uh, earthly life until we get to heaven, uh, that we need to realize how important it is for us to, um, you know, not consider ourselves as dry drunks is what he's saying. Uh, Don't use that terminology. Expect that if we are in Christ, there is advance in growth and holiness and moral improvement uh, reflected more and more of conformity to the life of Christ. And I think this is a very helpful article with reference to, you know, helping us really grasp that, that we shouldn't accept uh, anything less 
then if we are in Christ, then we are indeed uh, able by his power and the power of the word that word gives us direction and to be transformed and to look like him. And we don't cave into and give into these old affections that used to hold us in bondage. So it's a helpful article. Uh, Paul. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it says right here at the very beginning, it is to be expected that the following opinion piece will be criticized as homophobic, fundamentally at odds with the gospel, grossly callous and hurtful. It will surely be faulted for issues it does not address and for forbidden diction as well as insufficient empathy. So that's the beginning of the piece. So so check it out. But it, the, the thought that came to mind about have you ever known a dry drunk is two questions. I wonder if there are, you know, Christians who consider themselves like they, they used to really struggle with alcohol, but they've been sober these many years that believe that because that was their struggle, they don't feel like they are called to be an elder, uh, you know, to, to, to be an overseer, if you will, if they were, you know, given the opportunity to do so. Likewise, I wonder if there are men to Day might, uh, you know, partially identify with the side B thing that's going on here, but because because they are are there are there uh, Christians who are tempted with homosexual lust who also don't believe like they they agree with uh you know with 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 us or me about the issue of what does it mean to be above reproach? What does it mean to you know, be known for a, a sin that we would be we would consider to be notorious for. Um, I, that that's what I that, that's my question. I mean, I don't have an answer to it, and I just wonder if there are men out there who struggle with homosexuality who say because of because of that struggle, you know, my faith is in Christ, but because of that struggle, I don't want to aspire to the role of overseer. Yep, and I think they are. Uh, and what we would encourage them, though, is if that the person is in Christ, for sure, that uh, with he looks at the gifts that he has. And uh, in other words, we don't make that same statement with reference to any other sin. Uh, you know, we of course, Paul even says, that, you know, that that he even though he was the chief of all sinners, he was uh, it was because God wanted to use him as an example that if he can get Paul, he can get anybody. Uh, and um, so I think that's an important thing for us to, um, you know, recognize that th- that uh, God is in the business of when he takes a sinner uh, to bring him or her into a likeness of Christ, as I've already said. And that's the basis on which we um, grow, you know, in uh, grace. And that's the new uh, objective that we have. It's not to uh, revert back but it's to go forward and grow in that grace so uh, it is possible so if somebody uh had a uh, was a serial liar uh just just lies could roll off his tongue without any difficulty without any pangs of conscience now becomes a believer uh and one of the things of course that a christian is to do especially if you're going to be an officer is you you need to be able to tell the truth and you cannot hide it, can't shade it, you can't use nuance and so forth. So that's one of those areas in which God, by his spirit, will lead that person into truthfulness uh, and to how to speak the truth and to um, revel and to delight of walking in the light, not walking in darkness, which which is what would shade uh, and give cover to uh, lying. So should someone like that 
also consider uh, being an officer. Well, they're growing in grace and the giftedness is there. Yes, they should. So we'll, but that's what's coming up. And that's reason I think the, you know, what we've already said is that the present issues before that are before the church because of what's inside the church as well as in culture uh, really drive the having to take that framework of biblical ethics and say, in what way does that framework work its way now into um, what what guidelines does scripture give us so we can develop a, a, a good, wholesome, biblical view of human sexuality in terms of its practice uh, for us individually and then for the church. That's basically what we're talking about here. And we shouldn't be afraid of that and take a stand on that principle. And, uh, and when this issue is gone and we have another one, uh, it, it'll come up. Uh, we, we Again, we'll have the framework and we need to say, in what way does this framework give, give us the particular way, the specific ways by which we can handle the ethical application to uh, to every part of life? Well, and I think I think that's also a good segue to, to the next article yes. on the top 10 list here from yes, the Washington right. uh, Post. That's right. And this is and this one uh, it, it was interesting because it gives history. It's called Traditional Side B. LGBTQ Christians experience a renaissance. Now, this is a history. So if you haven't been around or listened to all the details of when did all of this sort of explode on the scene, it started basically in the spring of 2018, uh, came to sort of a, a zenith in July of 2018 with the first Revoice conference that was held in St. Louis. And uh, and it was held with the intent of what this article talks about. This is from a religious news service written by Catherine Post. And uh, if you want to say, what was it that, where did this come from? How did it get there? This is the article to read. It gives some background. It gives along with some of the interpretation of those that were involved in the very beginning. Uh, some of those who began have from uh, and other articles that didn't say it in this one have sort of moved away from some of the things that they started out with because they think it's gone revoice as any group would go has begun to take it uh, and become stronger, I guess, committed to side B, which those of us like myself believe that the more side B you become, the more open you are to side A. And uh, therefore it's something that, uh, I'm going to use the, the word that people don't like. It's, it's slippery slope. It happens. It happens in people's lives. It happens in the church. So I think it's yeah, a great word. I think it's a great word. I'm not giving it up. So they, if someone doesn't like it, that they can use something else. But this article here will give you that background in terms of some of the main players, individuals, what was think they're thinking, good quotes. And so, so from the point of view of just history, uh, it will tell you what the main players are and what their thoughts are, and and what out of the it comes out of the horse's mouth, so to speak, and not made up by somebody else. And I think that's reason. I think it's a helpful um, article. So, did you want to make any additions to that? No, no, I've, okay. I've got I've got nothing on the on this one here. Okay, good. All right. Well, now we come to number seven, and I'm this goes along with the fourth. Article. Remember, we talked with Chris Gordon's about the end of Christendom, and here is one that actually takes that name 
the end of Christendom because it, it's the uh, phrase that uh, was referred to, uh, quoting uh, Dr. Godfrey. It's written by Jim Fitzgerald. Uh, something very specific happened in America that brought Christendom to its end. Well, you remember that uh, Dr. Godfrey was saying it was the 2015 um decision on homosexuality, which opened up the the gates to interpreting things very broadly. Uh, the, Jim Fitzgerald argues that he takes it back to 1791. So how's that for a gap in the see uh, in this? And so what he uh, says is, as he quotes from um, refers to Oliver O'Donovan, has observed that there are many competing causes for the end of Christendom, but one sticks out more than the rest, and that is the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. For O'Donovan, the end of Christendom was not 2015, but 1791. Now, the reason that he gives for this is there's both a paradox and an irony. The paradox can be seen in that the First Amendment was conceived by the founders was supposed to be the guarantor and the protector of Christendom. And yet it is precisely this amendment that was used to trigger anti-religious sentiment and the weakening of the church in society. The irony is that the First Amendment is the most cherished and championed of all amendments by the majority of evangelicals. And yet it was a quintessential flaw of the founders' political theory in that it nearly guaranteed it nearly guaranteed that theology and politics would thereafter be permanently separated. And that's the reason he's making that point, that permanent separation of uh, uh, theology and politics. So the point that he makes comes, he brings it down to an end, a realistic assessment of our present situation in America would have to admit that overturning the 2015 Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage is at best improbable and rewriting of the First Amendment nearly insurmountable. So in other words, uh, we really can't make any real changes to what happened in 2015, nor can we make uh, any go back to 1791 with the the uh, uh, list of the, the first the Bill of Rights uh, added, added the first 10 amendments to the Constitution were added. Of course, no Christian living in 312 A.D. Now, Paul, do you know what happened in 312? Around there? I do not. Okay. This is when uh, Constantine uh, claimed to have become a believer. Up to this point, from the time that uh, Christ came, was born in Bethlehem, all the way till right at Con when Constantine became the emperor in Rome and he sort of be, you know, became the head guy. Uh, Christianity was illegal. Uh, so from, uh, I just say, if you say from zero to 300, just say in that period of time, uh, Christianity was growing, it was spreading, it uh, was being persecuted for sure, uh, but it, it did not have a, it was not legal and could be taken out anytime or at least persecuted, never could be taken out. Uh, that's, by the way, that the, the, the golden uh, beast that we talked about from Daniel to was coming against the kingdom of Christ, which was growing and developing, multiplying through the spread of the gospel. Anyway, so up to that point, although time was illegal, if you were a Christian and uh, you saw that uh, in your town, your city, uh, let's say abortion was being practiced uh, freely and without any 
uh, remorse. Uh, you couldn't write a letter <clears throat> to your mayor or to the governor of your district or to the your senator in Rome to say, uh, dear Mr. Political Leader, uh, I need you know I'm really offended by the fact that we're not taking seriously the fact that uh, you know from uh, womb to tomb we reign the image of God and everything is precious, life is precious, and so forth. And so I ask that you outlaw abortion. And he would probably look at that and crumble the letter up and throw it away as he was going out to probably have a tryst with his 12 year old lover, uh, boy, love lover boy. And uh, because there was, it was, everything was pagan. Everything was part of that image of the city of man. Okay. So 312 Constantine not only gets converted or at least claims that it actually uh, 12, 13, somewhere around there, but he, he issued the Edict of Milan, where it made the empire Christian all of a sudden, boom, overnight. And that's where things began to change uh, in our history. So I, I, when I teach early church history, I have one lecture that I call the uh, that Constantine, uh, a blessing and a bane. He was a blessing because we didn't get the church wasn't being persecuted anymore. He was a bane because the church wasn't being persecuted anymore. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, he says, so the ends up by saying, regardless of the precise cost of Christ, cause of Christendom's end, we would do well to remember what Christendom was, uh, that, that, I mean, that Christendom was born in just such a time as this. In other words, when was Christ born? There was no announcement in the Jerusalem uh, Chronicle or the Bethlehem Gazette that Jesus was born king of the Jews. It came very quietly. Now, God knew it, and it was going to have tremendous impact in the world. Uh, and that is that stone carved out of the mountain that we talked about earlier, that now is going to uh, grow and become the foundation for the kingdom of God and the uh, work, its work here on this earth as it eventually will wind up in glory. So that's the point that I think that Jim Fitzgerald's making here is that last sentence, is that what is regardless of what our time is, Christendom, Christianity as the faith reflecting who the powerhouse is as Christ um, exists and will continue to exist as the kingdom uh, over all of the kingdoms. In fact, all the others will eventually fall and fail and Christ will succeed whether or not the political system uh, approves or not. Yeah, I t totally agree with that, and it's very encouraging to think about it in that context. You know, about this article, when it talks about the end of Christendom, you know, there's a lot of theories. I think, um, you know, bringing up what happened in 1948, and, you know, he's saying that this happened in 1791, and then uh, you look at 1948 with the Supreme Court ruling, and he says rewriting the First Amendment. And it's very clear, by the way, that that's exactly what happened. It was rewritten. As a matter of fact, the establishment clause, as uh, you know, people like to call it now, who are big on you know what the current jurisprudence is, actually violates. It, it's inconsistent with the with the document of the Constitution it, itself. Uh, if you go to the Constitution, you look up Article One, Section Seven. It's the process of how a bill becomes a law, and you get down here about when Congress passes a law that the president has ten days. Uh, to, uh, you know, to, to sign it or to veto it, right? He's got 10 days, Sundays accepted, meaning Sundays 
are not counted against the 10 days. Now, why would that be? Uh, it, it, it's in there because Sunday is a specifically Christian uh, Sabbath, Christian day of rest, the Lord's day. So the idea that the founding fathers did not enshrine Christendom in the Constitution is completely, uh, you know, easily debunked if you just go read the, the processes. That That is, by the Establishment Clause, uh, you know, understanding, they're in violation of the Establishment Clause by excluding a Christian Sabbath, not counting against the number of days for a bill to become law. Uh, so, that, you know, that was my first point when I was uh, reading this uh, and, and, and reading how different America, back to the article about uh, Christendom, the end of Christendom, how different America might be at present if only our founders would have enshrined Christianity in the text of the Constitution rather than asserting a vague notion of the free exercise of religion. Again, there, this is one of the reasons, Dominic, some people didn't even want the Bill of Rights. Much like there are people claiming right now that we don't need the BCO amendments because the Westminster already addresses this, the same argument was made back in the 18th century when the Bill of Rights were, were put forth to be ratified because they thought the Constitution in and of itself, with an enlightened understanding of you know the definition of words that were in the Constitution, that it was such a limiting principle already, that the limiting principle was so that had bound the central government to such a degree that the Bill of Rights would actually later then give cause and give reason to try to twist them. That they, they were, uh, and that's why you have the Tenth Amendment, which is like, hey, if we missed anything, everything else belongs to the states or to the people, just in case we missed anything, just in case we missed any check on your power. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Again, you know, you can go to forty-eight, you can go to twenty-fifteen, but. I really got to say that if you ask me, I think Francis Schaeffer had it right. The end of the Christian consensus was actually when the Supreme Court legalized abortion. Uh, That, to me, more so than taking prayer out of schools, I mean, that was the beginning of the slippery slope. I mean, again, let's let's talk about that phrase. That is a legitimate phrase. Look, look what they did. Look what they did in 48. Then look what they did in 73, 74. Look what they did in 2015. You went from removing God out of public life and with the with the bogus establishment clause, the rewriting of the First Amendment, then you decided to murder children and institute a way to legally have a genocide in this country. And from there, once you started to no longer respect the sanctity of life and God's hand in it and God's hand in our everyday life in public schools, we get Romans one. We get this critique of mankind left her own devices. We're going to go down. Further and further and further, we're going to exchange exchange natural relations with unnatural relations between man and man. Then we're going to totally corrupt the institution of marriage. And from 2015, when we put the rainbow on the White House, to 2021, we now have people arguing for pedophilia as an actual – something that should be excused, something that should be sympathized with, something that should be understood. Uh, and, and, you know, and between that and the gay marriage decision, you know, you also have the trans and, and the grown men going into girls' bathrooms and stuff. You know, it's slippery slope is real. Like you said, it's also real in our individual lives. And, you know, it's also real in the church's, uh, the church's life as well. And it's, we can see it in our culture for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, that, uh, article that you would refer to just about, uh, trying to, um, normalized pedophilia is the the top article as you know we put uh post eight new articles every day 
the top article today on the AquilaReport.com is a report from a book that is written that is arguing uh, to um, put um, uh, calling for us to um, recognize that pedophilia is okay. In fact, just listen to this quote. I just happen to have it open here. I want to be extremely clear that child sexual abuse is never okay. This is the author that said that. But having an attraction to minors as long as it isn't acted on doesn't mean that the person who has those (laughs) attractions is doing something wrong. Now, how's that for the and that's I mean, that's, quote, that's side B language right there. If you didn't. It, it that is exactly right. That's side yeah. B language. Why, yeah. why can't they be a minister? That, exactly. that sounds so like a love approach to me. Exactly. See, and so that's the next one. In fact, as part of the uh, editing uh, process for that, I said, here we go again. This is the sub uh, title uh, underneath it. Um, it says in pedophilia being re, re, is pedophilia is being redefined as side B definition uh, map, which is minor attracted persons. So you, you, they even want to take the word pedophilia away. Minor attracted persons refers to someone who has preferential attractions to minors. So it'll be number one or up there next week. So we'll talk about it more at that time. So okay. we got to move on. I, but I, you, you know, I you, wish I could say I can't wait, but I, I really <laughs> I don't really want to. No, know. no. But it's it's coming around. And so the Christian number is, yeah, the influence of Christianity. Uh, but I, I just going back to the 300 years that we talked about before is uh, the first 300 years. Christianity did have an impact in culture, but it wasn't legal. And that's the reason I said Constantine was a blessing and he took away the persecution. But it was a bane because he took away the persecution. And we live better when we the contrast really does exist um, because Christianity, you had to make sure that you were living in the light and you were willing to take whatever grief came down the pipe with being identified with Christ. So anyway, okay, number eight um, here is grief, confession and prayer for peace. And this baby, the opportunity to uh, sort of uh, say, look, we guys, we're debating this, all these things in the Presbyterian Church of America and, and other denominations, the Southern Baptists are going through it as well, uh, and other denominations and local churches. Uh, this is by Todd Pruitt, who has been sort of been uh, store right in front of some of the debates within the PCA, uh, and basically saying, you know, I would love to be able to, uh, you know, just that we just come and confess, uh, grieve over these things, confess, and then pray for peace. If we could just arrive at that, uh, he starts out, I hate uh, fighting for, uh, I hate fighting and I hate controversy, truly. Uh, I much prefer peace and harmony. Peace is easier than fighting and I sleep much better at night. So, uh, and it's because of this debate that we were talking about earlier about the national partnership and, and the, all the mechanisms and the political shenanigans and the uh, the glares. I mean, everything goes along with controversy. And so he is saying, um, you know, is there some way that we can earnestly, biblically, really work things out and work together? And if so, I, I'm open. I'm I'm tired of the controversy. I wish it weren't there. I'm grieving over it, and I'm praying for peace. So join me in praying for peace. You want peace, Paul? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, of course, yes, I want peace. That is the, my Sunday school answer. 
Yes, uh, it's it's a good article. Grief confession. Sorry, I couldn't yeah, get no. my uh, my mic unmuted. So, uh, but again, this is we differ over the theology of revoice and side B homosexuality. So yeah. again, I counted six different articles in the top ten yes. this week that dealt with That's this. Right. So it's it's tense and Satan is active. Uh, that's part of that other kingdom that we're talking about, you know, and and he's uh, going to come and he is the accuser of the people of God. And we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become pawns for him. OK, number nine uh, sort of brings it into another church, the Christian Reformed Church. And this is a project called the Abide Project. Uh, it seeks to uphold historic beautiful biblical understanding of humans and sexuality. Uh, pastors and church leaders uh, in the group were alarmed by the decision of the Neyland Avenue Christian Reformed Church, that's CRC, to ordain a deacon who was, was in a same-sex marriage. So there's that full side A now where all the uh, pre pretenses are taken down, the slippery slope has you reached the bottom, and now you're uh, engaged in this. And so here uh, in uh, Neyland Avenue Church is in uh, Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, and the goal for the Abide Project is to see uh, the, um, the Human Sexuality Report passed, uh, said Steenwick, Steen, yeah, Steenwick uh, emphasizing that this is not a political goal, but a prayer for the movement uh, of the Holy Spirit. I do believe that the matter of sexuality uh, have the matters of sexuality have confessional status, like many other issues of holiness and discipleship, where we need more guidance is in the pastoral application. We're finding new pastoral situations every day. That's the very same thing that you and I just were talking about, Paul, that they, we, they, the matters are already contained in the confessional uh, documents. The question that we need, though, is guidance in the pastoral application. How do we put meat on the bones? How do we uh, structure that, that that confessional language into practical sexual ethics so that we're given the guidance? It's sort of like hearing a sermon. We hear the principles from scripture and then that sermon uh, or some uh, literature that we're reading, then application. How do we do, how do we deal with it? How do we apply it? Uh, here are steps that we can take. So um, anyway, this group within the Christian Reformed Church uh, is seeking to uh, bring about this, hopefully that the church hasn't gone so far into its commitment to same-sex marriage and the LGBTQ um, theology that it won't be able to be brought back. So it, it just at least they're making an attempt. And this is uh, the project uh, that you can read about and this is where it's come up with it's something that shouldn't have to be in a church that is confessionally based as the christian form church is historically but there it is yeah it's also good to have context uh with what other denominations are going through and like you said yeah. at the beginning another example side b church that went side a Exactly. Yep. And it uh, did did that in, uh, not too long ago. So um, the uh, the last one is sexual orientation. The notion of sexual orientation uh, fails as an explanation of homosexuality. And this is written by uh, Calvin uh, Gallagher. Um, and he is a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in California. Uh, the only biblically consistent way to speak of sexual orientation is to recognize that sexual desires and behaviors do occur 
in deep and persistent patterns. These patterns may be, be so deep as to feel natural, but the same is true of other sins. It is natural for us sinners to be proud, greedy, angry, and so on. None of these sins, however, are, quote, natural in the sense that they are normal and right behaviors for humans. And so uh, Calvin has been writing uh, different articles on different aspects of uh, sexuality. There's a sexual orientation, one around homosexuality, on same-sex attraction, and so forth. And uh, so he, he's been sort of work, walking through or working through these various words and definitions that we're sort of tossing around quite a bit that are, have been very helpful uh, for us to read. So commend uh, what uh, Calvin uh, Gallagher is yeah. doing. Uh, here's here then give us the, the number 10 article, but he writes, consider the phenomenon of bisexuality, the B in the expanding acronym. I was talking about that earlier. Is this an orientation in its own right, or does it describe someone who moves back and forth between two orientations? Such questions are even murkier when gender fluid, non-binary, trans, queer, and various other identities are thrown into the mix. No longer are we talking about an innate, unchangeable trait that makes certain sexual behaviors natural. Rather, we are talking about completely decoupling any evaluation of sexual behavior from innate, natural traits. Right. And that's where we are in this period of history. And so we'll repeat one more time that we have our confessions. We have the scripture, of course. Uh, it gives us that framework. It gives us our uh, ethics that we need. And now the question is how we make application. And that's what I think these different articles, as well as amendments that are being proposed uh, in the church, are, are really intended to uh, help us. But Paul, we've come to the um, end of our uh, podcast for this week on uh, November 15. And tomorrow, uh, if you are on the Aquila Report mailing list, you will receive your copy of the 10 uh, articles all linked and ready to be clicked on for you to uh, read, to share with others. Uh, feel free to uh, forward them to other friends and uh, to have discussions. Uh, this is uh, you know, one of the things that we need in the life of the church is to make sure that we are, you know, uh, working with together to learn these things. And so, Paul, thank you for the expertise that you bring into this and also the, the technical Thank you. Uh, background, and we'll look forward to seeing everyone here next time. Remember, go to the aquilareport.com, uh, read the articles daily if you can, and uh, sort of help to see if your article becomes number one or two or three next week. <laughs>